0: Got it. Cool. All right. Hello. How's everybody doing? Good to see you all. I'm here for the first time to be able to give you the Lord's word. We're going to be talking on the topic of justification. Um, Very mighty topic. Um, Pinnacle. I would say it's actually a cornerstone doctrine to uh, our Christian faith. It's not something that we could easily debate on. Say, oh, well, if you agree here or disagree there, it's okay. This doctrine of justification is the very thing that's actually what distinguishes us, what uh, makes us feel to have true peace with God in all the different ways. And if you don't get this doctrine right, it doesn't matter how many times you go to church, it doesn't matter how many times you feed the poor, or feed the homeless, or how many times you pray, you do not have peace with God unless you get this doctrine correct. So I figured what better way to be able to have us go through this doctrine than to have us go through the book of Romans. So the place I'm going to have us start off at, is in Romans chapter 1, verse 15. So, some places I'm going to be getting in more detail, but I'm kind of trying to highlight the important parts. But other parts, if I don't really go into it, it's not because they're not important. Of course, it is, like I said. But time is of the essence. So, of course, I got to be mindful of your guys' time. So, in this case, before I start there in uh, um, Romans, I just want to be able to give us a passage for those of us who have heard of this doctrine. So, it's going to be kind of... a uh, More, uh, you know, kind of a repetition. I'm going to repeat us the words of the Apostle Paul of what he said in Philippians 3, chapters 3, verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Indeed, the doctrine of justification, a lot of us have been raised in church a lot of our time. And we probably heard about this, the gospel message, plenty of times. But let us not become pride, but become humble. In hearing about this doctrine again, because when the times of trial and calamity hit, trust and believe it is going to hit us really hard and quick. And some of us won't even know what even happens before it's even too late. So let's be humble and hear this. And if you haven't heard this doctrine, I pray that the Lord will definitely give you the ears to be able to receive it, to accept it and to be able to give God the glory and thanks for it. So I'm going to start off in verse 15 where he says, so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. This is the Apostle Paul preaching, about to write his letter, to the believers in Rome. In this case, he's about to preach to them the very gospel that they probably have heard from him in person, but he's bringing it up to them in his uh, in their remembrance again. The term gospel means the good news. And the term good news is really, I'm sure what we all are eager to hear, whether it's we got a good news that we have got a job promotion. Good news. We got a brand new child. Good news is we got someone to come to Jesus, but it always brings us amazing and great joy. And so talking about this good news, that's what I hope to be able to bring smiles and gratitude and appreciation to all you guys. So verse 16, Paul says here, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek Big highlights here is that Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. For a lot of us who know that term ashamed, if I was to use an example, I would say I'm not ashamed of my son, um, even though he always acts up in school. Anytime you use the word ashamed, it's always implying the fact that this thing that you're not ashamed of is actually something that brings a lot of trial and a lot of anguish at times. Maybe you know the life of the Apostle Paul in his life preaching the gospel, it did bring him a lot of anguish. Nevertheless, he did not fall away from the faith, but actually was never ashamed for hearing and preaching and believing in this good news. Now, this good news is the very power of God unto salvation. I need to make sure we emphasize that because as I go through it, yes, I'm speaking to you in English, and this is written in English for us to be able to understand, but don't get it over Our heads that if you believe in this gospel already or you will believe in it today, it is because God sovereignly, sovereignly intervened in your life to have you believe and to accept this gospel. For apart from his intervening, you would not believe this and you would find it foolishness or even offensive and whatnot. So keep that in mind as I go through this passage today. Paul then goes into verse 17 where he talks about what this good news actually does for all those who believe in it. In this gospel, he says, it is the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul says in this very gospel reveals the very righteousness of God. And there's only one way to receive this righteousness for all of us here. And it is from faith to faith. Start to finish. And he even quotes the Old Testament, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Where he quotes and it says, the just shall live by faith. Some translations, if you guys are reading different translations, it will actually say, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, of course, to live that he's referring to here is not talking about living physically. Because many unbelievers who live and die doesn't mean that, of course, they you know, are able to have life. This is talking about spiritual life, being born again. Being able to have the eternal life that we're supposed to be, that we're called to have as God commands all men. Everywhere to repent. Now that term there, as my translation says in New King James, it says the just. And lo and behold, what are we talking about today? The, doc- the doctrine of justification. And how do we have life through justification? It is by faith. So, going on to verse 18, Paul is going to introduce us to the first attribute of God. As some of you may know, God has many attributes. His love, patience, kindness, mercy, justice. Um, you know, glory, holiness. And yet, this good news, how does Paul start off with what attribute? He starts off, as we see, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Very important to see that the Apostle Paul being able to speak of this good news does not do what a lot of churches today do, where they start off talking about the love of God the patience of God, the mercy of God. He, in fact, starts off with the very wrath of God. While, keep in mind, he's talking to us all about the good news, but talking about the wrath of God doesn't make anybody feel very comfortable, but it's for the warning of allowing us to be understand the very severity and importance of this doctrine and where we stand in this matter. Now, who's his wrath and anger against? It's as you see here against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. When you are considered just, justified in God's sight, you are declared righteous by God, as some of you may know in the catechism, if you revealed them, as if you read them. But actually, God's anger here is revealed against ungodly people, and here it is, unrighteous people. So if you want to say these people are also the unjust Those who are not justified in God's sight, that his anger is against all those. As we read on, because what may be known of God is made real in them or manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Why is God so angry against people who live sinful lives, live ungodly lives or unrighteous lives that don't seek truth, but rather suppress it? It's because, as Paul says here, God has made himself obviously known to them. They have the knowledge throughout everything that we do, see, breathe, what we build. I mean, you could really name anything in your life and I could show you how it actually points to God. As we may know, I'll use one example, probably maybe two. We eat. We eat. Why do we eat? Anybody know? To survive. survive. And when we stop eating, what happens? We die. Is it no wonder then that Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John says, I am the bread of life. Unless you eat of my body, you will have no life in you. What about drinking? Why do we drink water? Right, to live. And if we don't drink water, what happens to us?
1: We want to drink water.
0: You want to drink water and yet if you're like, yeah, you know what? I don't feel like drinking water today and you keep being hard-headed and stubborn, what eventually happens to you? I get a migraine. You get a migraine which eventually leads to what next? Death. Death. No wonder why Jesus then says I'm the bread of life but also the waters of life. Right? That he who comes unto me and believes in me shall never hunger neither shall he never thirst. That we could drink and eat of all the foods that he wants and it may fill us for a time. But unless you have the true bread and the true water, it is going to eventually lead you unto your eternal death and doom and misery, as we'll see shortly in a while. So, with all that being said, he then says here in verse 20 that they are then without excuse. So anytime anybody sees you, whether you've been raised in church and been hearing the gospel all your life, or you or you live in some far-out country and you never heard the name of Jesus, everybody does not have an excuse. Everybody does know of God, generally speaking, yet they suppress that truth and do not seek him. Now, carrying on, he then says, 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds, four-footed animals and creeping things. (sighs) So, as you see here, exactly as I pointed out, that although these people that Paul's describing didn't know of God generally what he generally would require of them, they did not glorify him, neither were they thankful. The term to mean here, not glorifying God, is not giving the respect, obedience, privilege that he is due. And that he's worthy of. But you notice Paul also adds there too, nor were they thankful. Why would he add that? We understand, I'm sure a lot of us would understand why he makes a note that they did not glorify God. Well, because God is glorious and he's worthy of eternal praise. And he's glorious. But why does he mention thankfulness? Lack of thankfulness. It's because all of us, I'm sure myself, you know, included... Do not actually give God the amount of thanks that he deserves, especially in our times of trial. Oftentimes we are so prone to be able to find ourselves being unthankful for the things that God has brought us into. A lot of us have shared our times of prayer requests. And of course, they're through deep times of trouble. But let us not be led astray by sin that tempts us to be able to point our finger to God and say, how dare you bring this to me? But let it keep us and His faithfulness to have us be able to remain faithful by meditating on his promises, right? But we'll get into more of that later on, right? To be able to show what happens to those who have been justified. We'll begin to that, Lord willing, in a bit. Carry on as we read about. What do these people do? They claim to be wise and they became, they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God. As I'm speaking of this message, of course, some of you will love it and rejoice in the Lord, which is a blessing. But some of you guys will not like certain parts that I'll be speaking. Of course, if I'm speaking and teaching is something that's obviously not on the proper context and not true and not faithful to the biblical teachings, of course, reject it. But if what I'm saying is actually faithful and true and you do not accept it, then we have a very serious problem on our hands. Let us be able to not resist what the Lord says. If it is faithfully taught, let us accept it and not be tempted to reject it. 24. Therefore, what does God do in response to people who change God's glory into whatever they see fitting for themselves? God gave them up to the uncleanliness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who now exchange the truth of God For the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. A lot of us may read this and see the fact that these people Paul is describing exchanged the truth for a lie. Now, I know a lot of us may be thinking, well, I don't know whoever would knowingly accept a lie and rejoice in that over a truth. Uh, It really sounds illogical. But in this case, remember, As what Paul says in verse 18, these people suppress the truth instead of accepting it and embracing it. When you walk in sinfulness apart from God's glory and you you walk contrary to the way he calls you, all you walk in is foolishness. You're walking contradiction, as we all are, if we do live our lives in sinfulness. So what is the result of those who exchange the truth of God for the lie? But then it even goes a step further. They now worship the creature rather than the creator. That's pretty bad because I know if you worship the very thing God has created rather than worshiping the creator himself. This means your devotion, your time, your life, your joy or lack thereof is based on this idol that you have. What will they cause you to do? 26, I read. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, wicked, vile passions. For as an example, their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Paul makes mention here of an example of homosexuality that these people pursue the same gender instead of pursuing the way that God has ordained marriage to be, to be between one man and one woman. In this case, if we keep in mind what Paul said earlier, these people who engage in such relationships are actually worshiping their partner, air quotes around there. And that's all they care about and that's all they serve. And what happens eventually to those who go down this path? 28, they then go on to then say they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So then what? God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Other translations would say reprobate or worthless mind. But you see, at this point, these people don't even want to hear anything about God. Don't get it twisted. This is not referring to the fact you don't want to hear about a God in general. They're not wanting to hear about the true God and His truth at all anymore. They want they want to hear about their God. They're fine with that. But when you preach to them the faithful, true God, and preach His gospel to them, they cannot stand it anymore. So what happens? They're now being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder. They're boasters. Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, oof. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, they're unloving, they're unforgiving, they're unmerciful. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Some of these. Sins that Paul lists, some of them may be more familiar than others. I'm sure a lot of us will actually come to recognize that a lot of these sound very familiar in our lives. Some of these sins, we might not find ourselves really struggling with much at all. But what is Paul's point in 32 in listing all these sins? That everyone knows that the righteous judgment of God says that those who practice these things are deserving of death. Well, what kind of death? Is he just talking about dying physically. Well, no, because there's obviously a lot of people who die unbelieving that die the natural death and many believers, true believers who also die the natural death. He is talking about the eternal death, the lake of fire, hell that he's referring to here, that all those who commit these sins and practice them are deserving of eternal Torments for these sins, which is, of course, a very unpopular message today being spoken in churches and even outside of churches. That being said, it gets even worse, as Paul would say, that they know that what they're doing is going to lead them unto eternal wrath being received by the Lord. But they also approve those who practice them, whatever it may be. I know I've heard some people that I've preached the gospel to whether it's directly reading them Romans or preaching them the gospel, keeping Romans in mind. And I'll tell them of certain sins, such as gossipers, that if you gossiped even once, that you'll go to hell. They say, oh, well, I understand murder. I understand hates. I understand, you know, stealing or doing something really bad. But you tell me gossiping is something worthy of eternal condemnation. It's a little extreme, don't you think? But then I tell them, the reason why you think that is because honestly, you actually are not taking seriously the amount of offense that you have given to the God who's giving you life, breath, patience, and long suffering. And really, and the fact that you actually do not have that trembling, but you actually say it's not that serious, really shows how deeply you've fallen in your own darkness in that case. Going on that I ask everybody here. As I've read chapter one thus far, uh, to go into the next chapter, some people may come up with people in mind that chapter one describes, which may be the case, may be true. But does this chapter one describe you? That any of these sins is actually describing your lifestyle and whatnot. Say, well, I may have done some of those things, but obviously I don't really think, you know, I'm the one deserving of eternal death on my own merits or my own works or my own lifestyle. I do better than my neighbor next door. Well, what does Paul say in Romans chapter two, verse one? Therefore, you are an excusable, O man, for whoever you are who judge for in whatever you judge another, you actually end up condemning yourself for you who judge practice the very same things. Paul here doesn't even allow any of us to be able to pass the blame onto someone else. Pointing to our neighbors and saying, well, obviously you think I'm bad. Look at Johnny next door. He's like, no, actually, I need you to look at yourself first because Johnny next door has his own problems. You have enough problems on your own, right? So in this case, we need to recognize that this is actually a call that we all fall under the same umbrella. That we all do not naturally receive the love and patience and mercy of God, but we actually receive and deserve the wrath of God. His anger, and it's an intense one, so much so that our Savior, for those of us who are true believers, Jesus Christ, when about to face the trial of the cross, sweated droplets of what appeared to be blood in that case. So either two things for Christ about to endure the wrath of the Lord, wrath of the Father, Either A, Jesus was over-exaggerating and it's not that serious to be see the wrath of God or option B, we severely underestimate how much of a serious problem it is to take the wrath of God so lightly or to not care or to say, I'll do it later. I'll deal with the religion stuff later, but let me just do me for a second. I mean, at least I deserve that, right? Well, not according to Paul. The only thing you're deserving of is death. Yet, you're still here. Why is that, right? As we may know, when a criminal in our society commits a crime, we'll just say he commits three murders and he actually is guilty of it, when is he supposed to receive justice? Anybody know? After he's convicted? Yeah, after he's convicted. And when should that process start? Should it start in like a year? Five years? Ten years? Right away. Right away, right? As soon as you commit the crime, you are automatically deserving of receiving the justice that is due. Of course, if you're found guilty, which in this case, for my analogy, this individual is found guilty. Yet a lot of us have committed many crimes, many sins against the Lord in his heavenly court. Yet some of us have lived till 20 years, 10 years, 40 years, 45 years, still breathing, not receiving the justice that is owed to us. That we deserve. Why is that? Well, I'll get into that in a second. Verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to to truth against those who practice such things. What are those things? Any sort of sin that Paul has listed in Romans 1 or that is similar that we've read in Romans chapter 1. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? It's a rhetorical question. How do you think that your neighbor, who's doing whatever wickedness it is, and you say, well, I'm doing it, but what do we say oftentimes? When we point the finger to our neighbors, and then we have a brother or sister that actually shows us our hypocrisy, what do we often say or even have said? Well, it's not the same. Really? Well, okay. I guess there you go, trying to pass the buck, of course, making your own situation worse for yourself. That's why Paul asked this rhetorical question. You can't pass the buck. You do the crime. Anybody know the rest? Do the time. You do the time. Unfortunately, in this case, in the heavenly court, your time's never going to end. There is no parole. There's no probation. It is constant judgment upon yourself for all eternity. Keep that in mind. That being said, here it is. Verse four. Ah, oh, yes, this is a good one. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. I will say a quick note on this because I've heard this oh, wonderful verse so many times. I've heard many times that uh, many pastors would quote this passage and say, oh, yes. This passage is, of course, showing that the goodness, kindness and patience of God is what leads you to repentance. Therefore, what we must do to our neighbors is be loving to them. Love them. Now, of course, when, I, when they say that, what they mean is don't be offensive. Don't tell them what's going to hurt their feelings. Don't tell them what is going to make them lose your friendship. Be encouraging. Be nice. Make them smile. Don't make them ever feel sad or offended. Heaven forbid. But of course, when they quote this passage, they, I guess, don't read chapter one or really the four verses before this verse or even the four verses after this verse because all Paul is talking about is the wrath of God and the judgment of God. So how could he possibly say the goodness and kindness and patience of God is intended to lead you to repentance? Well, it's as I said earlier. A lot of us are deserving of death, and yet God hasn't brought it to us because of his mercy, patience, and goodness. Some of us do see that, and by God's intervention in our lives, believe in the gospel and become... No longer condemned as we're going to get into in a second, Lord willing. But others say, well, I'm 15. Of course, I'm going to live to about 60. So I got some time. I'll get to it later. Well, as you see, you're taking it for granted. And I know speak from experience in my life. Anytime I find myself taking something for granted, I end up deeply regretting it. But thank, thanks be to God that he gives us his word to be able to show us that today is the day of salvation to that indeed. Now, verse five. But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent hearts, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render or give to each one according to his deeds. Here it is. Paul is going to show us two possible scenarios that you can either be on. Side A, side B. Verse seven. He will give eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and mortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what do they receive? Indignation and wrath. Which category do you find yourself under? Do you find yourself under category seven, where you keep doing good, seek for glory, honor, and mortality? Or do you find yourself in Category Eight, verse eight, where you actually are self-seeking and you don't obey the truth? Some may say, "Well, I mean, looking at my life, I actually do continue doing good. I seek for glory, you know. I seek the Lord. I'm faithful. I love to be able to know of His righteousness." I say, "Okay, let me ask you this question then, just to make sure we're on the same page. When Paul's talking about here seeking good or doing good for glory, honor, and mortality." He is talking about seeking the Lord and his faithfulness to the same degree and level that Jesus sought the father. So I'll ask it this way. Do you seek the Lord as Jesus sought the Lord? Because if you don't, well, then that leaves you with option verse eight. that You're instead self-seeking and don't obey the truth. Jesus did not come just to show us, you know, to flex and say, this is what I could do. Let me just show you guys how cool I am. Oh, go on and get the, throw off my shoulders. No, he's showing you what God has required of us to live. That the way Jesus lived is the way that God has actually required all of us to live. God is not great on the curve. God gives to each one according to their deeds. Let's carry on. Verse nine, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek but he gives glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul yet again shows the same options. Do you do good or do you do evil? Again, if you do evil, you receive tribulation and anguish. Don't get it twisted. He's not necessarily referring exactly to you'll have a poor life. So many people who live full on rebellious lives that air quote are living there. Best life now. He is talking about when the day of judgment comes, you will receive indeed that tribulation and anguish, deep anguish. But to those who actually are found righteous or just in God's sight, on the day of judgment, they will receive glory, honor, and peace. Nevertheless, for God shows no Partiality, or some of your translations would say, no favoritism. In this case, I shall keep going as tempted as it is to keep saying there, but I must go. Time is of the essence. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Here it is. Verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law that are, here's the word, just, justified in God's sight. But it is the doers of the law that will be justified. Now this is important because I have heard many people that have seen that Paul's points here, or even the fact that even certain reformed Christians avoid verse thirteen to actually show that we are justified not by faith alone, but by the works, by our deeds, as Paul says here. For it's those who are the doers of the law they will be justified. See, it's by our obedience. Again, what is Paul's point here, though? What is the context? He's showing you the fact that the standard of your obedience is required to be to the same degree of the obedience of Christ. So, yes, if you could be obedient as Christ is obedient, then great. You can be justified by your own deeds and merits. But unless you are self-deceived severely, we all understand that we fall short by God's standard. That is Jesus Christ himself. Now. We go on to chapter 3. Again, I'm not skipping because it's all irrelevant. I would love to be able to talk about the rest of chapter 2. But time is of the essence. As you see with chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul has made it very apparent in his, what he writes to his audience to make sure nobody has any grounds to be able to say, I have a little bit of right standing with the Lord. He's showing, no, none of us have any sort of leg to stand on when it comes time that the Lord is going to gather accounts on the day of judgment. Chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? As you see, Paul has shown his audience in chapter 2 that they're just as much guilty as the heathens. Anyone who's not ethnically a Jew. Gentiles, those who are not ethnical... Wow. Ethnical. Ethnical Jews, Right? So if you are not a Jew by ethnicity, then you are a Gentile. So Paul's point is the fact to show that whether you're a Jew or Gentile, we're all equally guilty and we all deserve this very judgment. Paul says, what advantage has a Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Why are they asking this? Because these Jews particularly are thinking, well, since we have God's law, we've been raised in church, we have so much better off standing than our neighbors. And Paul's like, well, that clearly ain't the case. They're like, well, dang. Is there really any advantage of being a Jew then? Paul says, yes. Because to them, Jews were given the oracles of God, which is God gave them his word, his instructions, his guidance, his faithfulness. They saw his miracles being done. You know, if you guys know your Old Testament, like for example, the Exodus, right? The Lord himself brought the Jews out of bondage and a captivity. And as And as in his goodness led him to the wilderness, leading unto the promised land. So what does he say then? Three. For what if some did not believe, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Why are they asking such a question? I'll say briefly, they're asking this question because God has given his law, his desires, his commands to the children of Israel, the Jews. But is God dependent upon the Jews that he needs their cooperation in order to bring about his plans? Well, no, because the Jews constantly kept failing what God required them to do. So as they ask this question, well, what if they didn't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithless of God without effect? The answer is, of course, no. Let God be true, but every man a liar. What is this point? That when God says he's going to do something, Whatever it may be, he is going to bring it to pass with you or without you. Of course, it'd be better if it was with you, not without you, just saying. That being said, let's carry on. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? This question came up from the constant understanding that despite all the sinfulness and rebellion of the Jews, That God still was able to bring about such a great blessing. And the pinnacle of his blessings was found in the Messiah, as we know, Jesus Christ. So they say, well, dang, if all of our sinfulness was actually being used to be able to bring about to show the glory of the Messiah to come and be able to show that God used our wickedness and intended it for good. Well, why does he condemn us then? Shouldn't he thank us for our sin to be able to bring us to such an amazing, glorious thing we get to see of the Lord? Paul says, no, you did the crime, you do the time. Of course he didn't say it, but of course that's what he means. Paul says, certainly not for then how will God judge the world? Just because God has used your sinful actions and desires for good does not mean that he gives approval to your wicked actions, that you will still reap what you sow, you will still receive what you deserve as Paul talked about in Romans chapter 2. Verse seven, for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory. Why am I still judged a sinner? Of course, Paul is over here preaching them and telling them, and he's already heard these objections so many times preaching the biblical gospel, that yes, your sinfulness does bring harm, but God indeed brings glory through it and to it. Why does he still judge you as a sinner? Because God is holy and just. He does not show favoritism. He hates wickedness, but loves righteousness. So trust and believe. Let us not be tempted to think, oh, well, my sin will bring good. Eventually God will intend it for good. No, because Paul says here, as people have said about the apostle Paul himself, some may say, let us do evil so good may come as we are slanderously reported. As some affirm, we say their condemnation is just if you ever believe that your grace gives you a license to sin you have indeed proved that you are actually condemned at this point, lest you repent and the Lord gives you that repentance. Here it is, verse 9. What then are we better than they? The we is the Jews, the they is the Gentiles. Not at all. For we previously charged, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. In that case, what does he then quote? Many Old Testament passages show you what God says about every sinner. If you're a sinner, this describes you. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues have practiced deceit. The poison of asps, or in some other translations, the snake venom, is under their lips or drips from their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the ways of peace they have not known. And here it is. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now who says this? Paul tells us in verse 19. Now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. This is the law of God that it speaks about everybody who does not keep it. This description for verses 10 through 18 is a description of how the law describes you, which is nothing really that our world really speaks much about. It's very uh, keen of uh, being able to preach to others, more so just encouragement. They fail to acknowledge any of this part. But it is important to know how serious God sees our wickedness. That this is a very serious issue that needs to be resolved. Paul then says, verse 19, now we know whatever the law says. It says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped And all the world is guilty before God. Here it is. Good one right here. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, or another translation says, by your works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified. There's that word justified in his sight. For by the law is simply the knowledge of sin. Or as other translations say, the law simply shows you how sinful you are. I'll use a good uh, common example and then I'll have to keep moving on because we're getting into the good stuff. Well, this is all good stuff. Don't get me twisted. Just letting y'all know (laughs) what he says. It shows us how sinful we are. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of us look at that and say, oh, that's the golden rule. Got to love your neighbor as yourself. So therefore, I will go ahead and do it. I will love my neighbor as I love myself for that is what I ought to do. But they fail to recognize when Jesus says initially to those who haven't heard of the gospel and don't believe in it just yet, when he tells them to love their neighbor, he's not telling them necessarily to do this. Go ahead and do this. this is what I need you to do. It is what he needs them to do. But he's actually telling them, love your neighbor as yourself because you don't love your neighbor as yourself. In the case of, yet again, loving your neighbor as Jesus loved you. Whether it's in your rebellion or in your sainthood. So that's why Paul is showing you that that law that you're trying to keep that you think is getting you brownie points with the Lord is actually the very thing actually condemning you harder and harder the more you try to use it to justify yourself in God's presence. 21, but now the good part. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Paul has shown us that our deeds at all Don't earn us any favor, any privilege with God. Therefore, there is no hope found within us or on us, whether it's in our past, in our present or in our future. But God, who is faithful and is worthy of eternal praise, has revealed a way for us to be righteous or to be justified in his sight. Which was prophesied by the law and the prophets showing us this wasn't no random thing. The Lord just decided to bring up. like I don't know. I just make up this random way. He prophesied it. And actually brought it to pass. And he says it here. Which is even 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being, here it is, justified freely. Keep in mind that term word freely wasn't just there just for dramatic effect. It's actually there to show us. That when we are justified in believing in Jesus Christ, we should recognize that we are not owed what God has brought us. And we did not earn what God has brought us in the terms of us being justified by faith in Christ. 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption. He redeemed us from being sinners, children of wrath, and has brought us into the very righteousness of Christ. That's what redemption is referring to here. That is in Christ Jesus, not if found anybody else, whom God set forth as a propitiation. That word propitiation is very important. It means to extinguish, to take on the full wrath of God, leaving none left over. So when Jesus gave up his life as a propitiation by his blood, aka dying on the cross, he took on the full weight of God's wrath, extinguishing it meaning there's no more left for all those whom Christ has died for. To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all Noah, all the people who were saints of the Old Testament. As Paul says, to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith. Apart from the deeds of the law. Or to put it in our terms today. We are. We have peace with God. We are made right in his sight. We are considered righteous by faith. Apart from our works. Past. Present. In future, I say that because I've met a lot of Christians and even I myself fall under this very same trap. And we say, "Okay, now I'm a Christian. Now I need to be obedient to be able to keep myself in God's favor and love and graces. I'm emphasizing that because once you do that is going to lead you down a very self condemning road or it might just lead you to actually depart from the very gospel that's supposed to be the very one to save you. So keep that in mind. Justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we make void the law through faith? He says, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. This verse 31 is very critical because anytime we believe in Jesus Christ, As being the sole reason that we have peace with God apart from our works, we may be tempted back then, today, or even possibly in the future to say, my works, my deeds, my obedience really doesn't really matter in the end. Therefore, God's law is more of a recommendation rather than a command. Paul says, no, certainly not, meaning get that thought furthest away from you. Actually, it's when you have faith in Christ is when you're actually fulfilling the true purpose of the law, which is what we keep God's law not to be saved, not to stay saved, but because we are saved and to show our love and gratitude for what our Lord has done for us. Or as we could say, to show evidence of the saving faith that we do have. Now, oof, that time is just flying by. We're going to go to chapter 4. This is where I really want to spend a lot of our good time in it with the time that I have left with you guys. I may have to skip some parts. I do apologize. But like I said, let's try to get into it. In this passage, Paul then brings up a pinnacle of the person who actually shows their life, which is Abraham. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? Meaning, what did Abraham have to say in accordance with his good deeds? For if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. Some he could say, yes, I took part in that. Whether it's 5%, 10%, or 90%. He would have something to boast about, but not before God. Now, why does he say not before God? Because as Paul previously already illustrated, that if you want any of your works to be approved by God, you have to keep it to his standard, which is the standard of perfection, right? So in God's case, that ain't going to fly. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness or credit to him as righteousness. Now to him who works, wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who doesn't work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, this is one of the important parts I want to make sure this doesn't go over our heads. He gives this example to those who works. We'll use the case of employment, working your job. If you did your job and you did did your job to the standard your employer likes, in two weeks, do you see your check as grace or as something they owe you? Anybody? Something that's owed to you because you did the work. Right? That was required of you. Now, if you are doing your job and you work for your two weeks, but you didn't do anything, matter of fact, you just slept most of the time and was just a horrible employee. In two weeks, do you expect your wage, your paycheck to come to you as something that's owed to you at that point? <laughs> My not going
1: to come to me. Huh?
0: So My paycheck's so not going to come to me. As, as we have here, well said, your paycheck ain't coming to you. But if your employer decides to give you your two weeks paycheck anyways, even though you were doing a horrible job, not doing your job at all, is that something that was earned by you? No, it's actually something that was given to you by grace. You did not earn that check. Neither did you work that check. Matter of fact, you shouldn't have gotten that check to begin with. But your, Lord was, but your boss was being gracious to you. That's Paul's point here. Is the fact that if you have any works that you've done. When God declares you righteous, it is because it's something that's owed to you. But in his case, when we are declared righteous, it is because of all that Christ has done for us. Just as David also describes verse six, the blessed of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed means how divinely happy the term blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin or count sin against them. As you guys know, we read it earlier. Sin brings the very wrath of God. So how joyful for us to be able to know that the Lord shall not impute sin today and even in our future. This gives us true peace. This is why I say if you try to believe that, yes, I have faith, but it's up to me to do works, then where's your peace? Because I'm telling you, if you don't believe you're going to have a day that you're going to fall short, oh, you will. Oh, you will. And trust me, believe you're not going to have shalom. You're not going to have peace with God at that point in time. But if you believe in the true gospel, even in your times that you really fall short, you will be able to say, well, I thank God that I have Jesus Christ who has lived the perfect life and has credited to me and has died and paid the penalty that my sins rightfully bring towards myself. We skip a bit to verse 13 for the promise that he would be the heir of the world. This is talking about Abraham was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but was through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, essentially meaning here the fact that if the fact that Abraham was made righteous was based on his obedience. Then no, there would be no need for faith. If we could do this on our own, there's no need for us to have faith in Christ to be our savior. But indeed that wouldn't be the case because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law. There is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, Not to those who are the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Referencing, if you have faith like Abraham had faith, as much as I would love to be able to go and talk about Abraham. Of course, not today. But if you have faith like Abraham, believing in the promises of God, then indeed you are a child of God. Right now, the reason why I want to make sure I spend a good amount of time in chapter five is because a lot of us believe in the gospel, believe we're saved. And, you know, if anybody asks, why do you believe you are saved? We just read it. Because I believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins, took on the penalty, and because of him alone, I am made righteous. But a lot of us either don't think about or pay much attention to what does a life of true faith look like for the believer? Well, Paul gives us Abraham that shows us a person who is justified by God will show their life to be lived in the way that Abraham lived his life through faith. Verse 17. As it is written, I made you the father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. That is God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Verse 18. Who contrary to hope in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. Now, he then says here in quotes, he's quoting in the Old Testament. So shall your descendants be. This is referencing Genesis 15, where God tells Abraham that he will have descendants as numerous as the stars. Abraham, at this point, was living in a pretty good part of his life. Pretty young, still able to make some children, of course, for some of us that know the story. But the reason why Paul quotes this promise is because Abraham believed in the promise even though he had no reason to believe it. At that point, he only had Eliezer. He had no son to be able to be having a descendant so he could be the father of many nations. Yet, he's like, well, I don't got a kid. So God said it, I'll believe it, right? I'll believe his promise. And this is exactly what led to him being the father of many nations. But verse 19, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. Now, other translations will say a little more easily, but it's okay, I'm here to help us all. When he says not being weak in faith, it means his faith did not simmer, did not lessen, did not grow weak. For he did not consider his own body, meaning he did not look at himself and say, well, I got some good time. I got some, uh, my body, because as you know, you know, we've got some youngins in here, hopefully you all being uh, taught about how, uh, you know, we're all get here, you know, through a, you know, marriage, of course. But what? the birds and the bees, right, as some of you may say. But to be blunt, of course, Abraham needed a descendant. But how do you get a descendant? It is through marriage, sexual union, having sex, right? Abraham, at this point, was about 100 years old. If you guys know anatomy, that point of your life uh, is not looking good, really at all, to be able to have any kids. So Abraham at this point still didn't have the child that God said was promised to him, being 100 years old, along with Sarah's dead womb. So he's like, well, I don't know how we're going to get a kid. I'm too old to be able to give you any kids, and she's too old to be able to conceive of any kids. So at that point, Abraham literally had no reason to hope. This is what Paul's talking about here. Not being weak in faith. He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but what? Was strengthened in faith. Now here it is. This is really the, the bread and butter of what it means if you believe in the good news that I went over for today. This is what your life is going to be marked by. There are many times of trial and hard times where you will have the promises of God, whatever they may be, whatever promises are in your season. And you're going to look at your circumstances and you're going to say, well, Lord has promised me that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. But I don't know about that because I just lost my job. My house just got foreclosed on. I don't have any way to provide for my family. I have any way to be able to, you know, pay for the rent. We're probably not going to make it past this week. So, I mean, he says it, but based on my reality, I don't think that's the case. If you are truly justified as Abraham is justified by faith alone in the promise of God, even though you have no reason to hope, that will actually strengthen your faith in the promise of God rather than weakening your faith in the promise of God. But of course, how could you do that if you don't know your prom- if? How could you do that if you don't know the promises of God? This is why it's critical for us to be able to meditate on His promises. Now, while we're not in a trial, or if we are in a trial, then yes, of course, meditate on His promises. See what the Lord says, because Abraham, as it says here, did not waver in the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith. Here it is, giving glory to God. Or another translation says, this is how Abraham glorified God. Was believing in his promises to be the very thing that gave him strength. Some of us may know that we as Christians do not walk by what? By sight, by sight but walk by. by faith. So, if we walk by faith truly, if you ever find yourself to be able to determine how faithful and unfaithful God is based on what you see, that is not going to work in your favor. It will actually work against you and actually give you a lot more trouble than you're supposed to be having. And being fully convinced of what God, of what, um, being fully convinced that what God, wow, my bad, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. This is what it means to be able to accept the righteousness of Christ by faith, But to be able to be strengthened in the times of trial, being a Christian who walks by faith, being justified by the righteousness of Christ for what he has done on your behalf. And here it is, 22. And therefore, you guys know your English, your grammar. Anytime you see the word therefore, it is a conclusion statement. So after all this, Paul has argued making all of his points and has made all of this to his conclusion. And therefore it was accounted to him as righteousness. Keep in mind, if you guys know the catechism question, justification is when we are accepted as righteous because of Christ alone. Abraham believed in God and was accredited to him as righteous. He was justified. And with the example that Paul gave that he went through many trials where it looked like it just wasn't going to work out, that God was not going to be able to keep his promises, he kept believing. He kept being strengthened. Yes, he did fall. But Paul's point here is the fact that those who are truly justified are those who meditate on the promises of God day and night and having it be their joy and delight. For they will be a tree firmly planted by the rivers of water, bearing fruits in all seasons. And in all that they do, they indeed shall prosper. That is what it means to be truly justified. Not just at have peace with God, but to be able to live your Christian life, meditating on the promises of God. And as we wrap it up with the last two verses. Now it, was not, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Meaning, was this case of righteousness only for Abraham? Was he just the only one who got it? Paul says but it was also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our here's the word justification jesus died to take on the penalty for our sins as the catechism states but when he was raised he was raised from the grave spiritually physically all together to show that everything Jesus said, as we read about in the Gospels, was true and faithful. And that in saying all those things, that every word that he said, that he indeed is the one who has been truly accepted by God as righteous. And if we believe in him, we sit where Jesus sits, in the very position Jesus sits, being accepted and dearly beloved by God, by the triune God. That he sees us as he sees his own son. And let us, again, that is a promise. There's going to be times that we're going to be falling short. And when we do, we're going to feel God doesn't love me. God doesn't care for me. Or you bring up your sin for the 80th time. And you say, Lord, it's really tired of hearing me about this. But we got to remember that if we are truly children of God, God sees us as he sees his own son. So let us boast in our weakness. For in our weakness, God's strength is perfected in us. Amen. And that will be it for myself today. Oh, no, I know. Oh, of course. I was just getting a little sore. That's a little hard. So open for questions. Any any questions, comments, concerns for today?
1: Oh, yeah,
0: there's
1: a whole bunch of questions.
0: Right? <laughs> go ahead, Stephen. I oh, don't know. My own question was Ross. Ross was going to go without asking the question? <laughs> uh, here, too. Oh, yeah, I bet, right? overall topic was more so, um, so as John's question was, did I purposely choose to end the study today on Christ being raised for our justification as saying that's what covers the catechism question? My goal was actually using Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4 to show the full essence and life of what it means to be truly justified. The fact that when Jesus came, why are we justified? Why does it matter that Jesus was raised from the grave? Well, it shows that where he sits at the right hand of the Father, that's how we are declared righteous because of where he sits, he intercedes for us. And that's Paul's, as I understand, Paul's point in Romans 4, at the end of it, being raised for our justification, because as you read in Romans 8, it says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Indeed, no one, for it is is Christ who sits at the very right hand of the Father. Where Christ sits, is where we stand positionally as well, and it's important for us to be able to understand the fact that Christ, that God sees us as He sees His own Son, by where He stands in the everlasting favor of the Lord. So that's just a part, but that wasn't all that I was talking about. That's why I purposely start at Romans one, well, all the way up to chapter four. So, thank you, Ross.
1: I was going to ask something, uh, in spite of Paul sitting right behind me, um, of a uh, like a a pictorial example of the need for Christ to intercede on our behalf. That God the Father, um, in effect, uh, when you pass from this physical world. To glorification uh-huh. and God is going to determine whether you are righteous because if there if you are not righteous you will not be in heaven <clears throat> and that God doesn't go directly to you uh-huh. but he goes to God the Son is this person righteous? You know what I'm asking. And God, Jesus, is the one uh-huh. that, it's kind of strange to say this, uh, uh-huh. informs God the Father that this person is righteous. Uh-huh. I have covered him, so to speak. Right. I was wondering if you could, you know, comment on that mechanism, if you will
0: so if i was hearing your question correctly you're asking what does it necessarily mean for christ to intercede for us yeah okay so i would quote a good old passage first john chapter two it says for if any of us have sin, we have a advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous which is the team the term to mean that jesus is the one who stands as the mediator between us and the father being able to stand for us defending our case and to show us, to show the father that we are righteous, not in our own works, not our own obedience, but because of what Christ came and paid the penalty and has in exchange, as the book of Galatians would say, that he has took on our sins, but in exchange, actually, no, Corinthians, that he has in exchange, given us his righteousness, right? As we said, the divine transaction in that case. So when Christ intercedes for us, what's the importance of it? I well, always we say right now. He intercedes for us because of all the sins we commit today, commit tomorrow, and in our future until we die. Where does his intercession come from once we go to eternity and glorification? Well, that's what we talked about in the evening of Sunday school. Talk about Christ and the church, being united as one, being able to be united as one holy bride, reflecting the glory of Christ as we ought to, and whatnot. So,
1: So all I'm trying to do is just uh, perhaps the people that are newer in the faith to point out the need for Jesus to impute his righteousness into us. Without that imputation, God will not see us as righteous. It's the work of Jesus... And his work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension that um, he has, uh, well, he's he's our redeemer. He's he's redeemed us. He he purchased us and proceeds to intercede on our behalf, we still can't go directly to the Father and say, "Okay, I'm good now. You know, here I come to, to heaven, I'll be there, you know, any minute." Mm-hmm. Um, it is Without Jesus interceding on our behalf, wouldn't God the Father not see us as being righteous that He Must that he theologically goes to God the Son Mm -hmm. for the verdict is this person righteous or not?
0: Yeah, um, so for the let me try to see if I could try to answer it in this way. Hopefully, I get it. Not we're all in this together. So, in the Old Testament, um, God is uh set up for what we would know as the day of atonement, where we have a high priest. We had the children of Israel and we had the temple and the high priest would get a sin offering where they would get shed the blood of the, the lamb and they would take it into the altar. But you notice not any children of Israel was able to go into the most holy place. It was on the high priest one time per year. Only they were able to go into there and no one else. And that high priest was interceding on the behalf of the other people. For when the high priest offers the sin sacrifice as God has instructed for them to do, then the high priest, along with all those the high priest represents or intercedes for, all their sins are forgiven altogether. But if you refuse to accept the high priest to represent you, well, your sins are not atoned for, and good luck trying to walk yourself into the holy, most holy place without having the proper credentials, for you'll die on the spot, and you'll, of course, die in everlasting fire. That high priest is foreshadowing to the anti-type of our true great high priest who has entered one time for the sacrifice of all of God's elect to bring them into not just the temple made on the earth, but more so the temple, the true temple in heaven. It's the very presence of the father with not the blood of animals, goats and whatnot, but with his own shed blood and by his own blood, giving that offering to be able to bring us into the very presence of God, Because the high priest, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn in two. So as the book of Hebrews well says, Now let us come boldly now into the presence of the Lord. Because of what our intercessor and great high priest, Jesus Christ, has done. Which is something that was never done before Christ ever came. Even if you had your sins atoned for on the day of atonement, you could not come into the very presence of God. But because of Christ being the true high priest, we now have that great privilege not to have our sins just atoned for, but to be able to have the fullness of God dwell in us as his temple. So.
1: So that preachers are on Paul. Keep going. <laughs> 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 Paul doesn't, does, doesn't necessarily like using pictures, that, like uh, using a, an egg to describe... The Trinity or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, no, of course. It's a terrible description. It's a nice tribe but it's very short. And oftentimes, yeah. pictures fall short. But the typology right. uh, of the Old Testament is, yeah. I hope, satisfactory <laughs> in trying to uh, provide an image of yeah. what is actually the, the transactions. And, yeah. uh, okay, anyway. Yeah, I know. Indeed. Amen. Sure. Amen.
0: Appreciate it. Anybody else? Guess not. Alright, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Right. Appreciate it. God bless.